Hello everybody, it's Chris here. I hope you're well. Um, some good news and bad news. Uh, the bad news is there is not going to be an espresso martini or extra shot this weekend. Unfortunately, life matters have got the better of both myself and Matt. And uh, instead, we will be returning on Saturday the 30th of September with the next episode of Espresso Martini and Extra Shot, which is for our Patreon subscribers. Now, many of you have probably heard about Extra Shot, uh, but you may not have actually listened to an episode. So today I am going to air an episode from June in which Matt and I discuss a Mossad boat party that led to some deaths in Italy. We also look at Putin's alleged connections to the Red Army faction, and we are joined by chemical weapons expert Dan Kazita, and we discuss the poisonings of Kremlin critics in Berlin, and the conversation somehow devolves into cheese recommendations. And as the fun of Extra Shot, it kind of is a bit looser than our usual episodes. Um, and it was great to have Dan on back in June. And uh, Matt and I hope to have further guests on in the near future. So this is a taster of what you get if you become a Patreon subscriber. So Extra Shot is our additional episode that we put out after every espresso martini in which you get about another hour of Matt and I discussing the spy geopolitics and terrorism stories that matter to us. So... I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do enjoy it, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. Just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies and you can select the level that works for you. And with the two choices that you have, you will get a set of free secrets and spies coasters or you'll get a secrets and spies coffee cup. So thank you very much for your support. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will catch you next weekend on the next episode of Espresso Martini. Thank you very much for your support. Take care. Welcome to Extra Shot. Thank you very much for your support. If you're listening to this, you're directly supporting this podcast, and we thank you very much for that. So our first story on Extra Shot is about a boat that sank in Lake Maguri in northern Italy, and this particular boat happened to be uh, hosting a birthday party and the guests were all serving and former intelligence officers working for uh, the Mossad or the Italian uh, intelligence services. The exact agency the Italians working for has not been publicly named as far as I've seen. So it's a bit open to speculation to who they were working for. But um, on this, this boat sank at Lake Maguri and um, it was revealed that 21 of the 23 passengers were serving or former intelligence officers. The group included 13 members of Israel's Mossad and eight from Italian intelligence, which has sparked speculation about the purpose of the gathering and the activities. Um, the presence of a large number of intelligence officers on a rental boat has raised many questions among the Italian public. And media outlets are dubbing the gathering as a spy party, which has fueled all sorts of speculation and made people wonder if there's some sort of weird mission 
mission going on. Some have pondered whether the spies were targeted by Russian investors in the area, given the skipper's fluency in Bulgaria and his marriage to a Russian woman. The chief prosecutor in Italy has emphasised that the investigation is focused solely on determining the cause of the boat's capsize and sinking and dismissing inquiries about spying activities. Um, as the investigation continued, the boat remained underwater and efforts have been made to surface the boat with balloons. Uh, surviving passengers were quickly taken away from the accident scene and Mossad even sent a private jet to repatriate Israeli survivors. Uh, four have reportedly died in the uh, in the accident. So Matt, do you have any, any thoughts on this, this episode in Italy? So I'm going to be a bit of a buzzkill and yeah. very unfun here and say that I think this is what it purports to be that yes, it was yeah. a uh a party um between uh intelligence officers in italy italian intelligence Mossad officers that you know went out on this kind of booze cruise out on the lake and a storm kind of whipped up and mm. the boat sank and 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 the reason that you know the authorities investigating it are kind of hush hush as to the identities of people involved is just because of the nature of their occupation um, I would, I would really don't think it's kind of anything more than that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that you had all these, you know, current and former spooks kind of on a boat together partying, but, uh, I don't, I don't think there was some kind of operation here. I just don't know what the operation would be. And it also doesn't seem like a very good operation if you have, what is it like, like 21 people on this boat mm. kind of just out hanging out like like doing what yeah i don't yeah. know yeah i agree with you i think i think it's down to probably booze and bad weather but what yeah. it did remind me of a little bit was um uh an incident happened in uh, june 1994 when a helicopter crashed in the mull of Kintyre in scotland i don't even know that story no. but in that crash 25 british intelligence experts from mi5 the royal ulster constabulary and the british army were killed in a chinook hc2 helicopter that crashed whilst it's flying in thick fog now due to the number of intelligence officers and their connection to operations in ireland there was an awful lot of speculation as to the cause could it have been the ira you know or whatever and um and in fact there's still some speculation to the official cause because the um the government first blamed the pilots for flying low in fog and that became the kind of the official what happened for many years but then in 2011 it was overturned when the helicopter itself was then blamed as there were known mechanical issues with that type of chinook helicopter and that kind of came apparent later on um so yeah i think this boating accident um is very much like you know this boating incident is very much likely just to be an accident where you know people were probably i don't know they should they, the weather apparently turned quite quickly um so you know um how experienced the skipper was i don't know but they probably should have known better um there was mm. something similar that happened I don't know if it was last summer or the summer before. It was fairly recent, though. I can't remember also. It was in Missouri. I don't know if it was Table Rock Lake or Lake of the Ozarks. Um, but it was a, a, a tour boat like mm. this. Um, I mean, there weren't there weren't uh, intelligence officers on it. It was just regular people. But it was out um, in out in in this lake and you know they didn't pay attention to the to the weather reports and this you know big thunderstorm came through mm. the wind whipped up and the boat sank and and uh, several people on board died. 
Um, so this this kind of thing does happen. I mean, it's sort of surprising to think like you would have this kind of weather like in a lake. But I mean, yeah. these are pretty big lakes. Mm. Uh, like those uh, Italian oh, yeah. alpine uh, lakes are, are quite huge. They're almost mm. like inland mm. seas, some mm. of them. Well, I was at Lake Como just last year um, and oh. it's huge. And Lucky you can, you. yeah. And do you know what? There was a moment where you could rent a boat, right? Um, if you wanted to, you could rent a boat. And I personally have um, zero uh, sailing experience stroke abilities other than being a passenger on a boat yeah. so so when this very brief idea was floated about and none of us in this group had any sailing experience i was the first person to say no <laughs> it's, it, you know yeah. especially considering how big that lake is it is huge and it's freaking deep um so yeah and and obviously microclimate especially when you're near mountains and stuff you get you can yep. suddenly the weather can change just like yep. that and there's and like so, wind shears yeah off the mountains yeah. yeah but though those sort of there are very you know it's very easy to rent a boat out there i don't know what checks they do on you to know how experienced you are so um i mean obviously this was a big boat and the guy who owned it i think actually the guy who was the skipper i think actually owned the boat so i'm assuming he had um quite a bit of experience but nonetheless yeah. you've got to be careful um and if, if there was any alcohol involved um you know uh it, 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 alcohol and bad weather can lead to bad decisions um oh yeah yeah. One quick note for listeners. If you're not familiar with Italian intelligence, they have three agencies. You have the AISI, which handles the domestic intelligence and security. So it's probably a bit like MI5. Then you have the AISA, which handles foreign intelligence, a bit like the CIA. And then you have the DIS, which is described as a security information department. So they're probably a bit like GCHQ or the NSA. And they all answer to a parliamentary committee which is known as c-o-p-a-s-r-i so um yeah so I, I suspect that the the italian side of the party is probably mainly um a-i-s-i agents who are domestic with maybe a sprinkling of some of the a-i-s-a agents who are of foreign intelligence right. um I would imagine that they had probably been collaborating on something prior to all this, and this was kind of like a way to blow off steam, and as they say, uh, celebrate the the birthday of one of the members in in that um, party. Um, so yeah, sadly it ended in tragedy there. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll move on to our segment with Dan. Um, so in this uh, this segment, he's going to chat to us about his thoughts about the poisoning of Kremlin critics that we discussed in the last episode. So I think I, I think he comes up with some very interesting observations in that in that segment. Dan, welcome back. Thank you for joining us on Extra Shot. So on our last episode of Extra Shot, Matt and I were discussing the possible poisoning of Kremlin critics in Berlin and Prague. Thankfully, those particular cases have not been fatal. Um, so, Dan, can you... you know, we, um, you've, I've shared with you the article. Would you be able to talk to us a little bit about some of the poisons that might have been used in this case? Because they're obviously creating certain symptoms, but they're thankfully not lethal from what we've seen. Okay, uh, that's an interesting uh, situation because I'm going to say it's very hard to tell what poisons may or may not have been used. Okay, uh, poisoning is an interesting form of of attacking somebody because, first of all, it's a very old tactic. It's as old as antiquity. Mm. Second, poisoning often doesn't get discovered because it mimics other things, like particularly in the older days, 
when there were more sanitation and food and uh, food and water related illnesses than we have now, uh, people would get sick all the time and people would die all the time. So somebody getting sick and dying from from bad food and bad water was uh, was a daily or weekly occurrence in the old days. It's rare now in our developed world, but it still does happen. You know, people die of food poisoning every year. Okay, so uh, and that's that's the that, that's the thing. Also, if it's something that's in food and drink, um, we have this complicated digestive system that's full of things like acids and enzymes and a lot of water, you know, stuff like that, uh, that will often make it difficult to identify what the poison is. Okay, poisonings can be very difficult to uh, to analyze. Some poisons leave more of a a biological footprint than others. Yeah. There's a whole world of poison out there. I mean, I'd say, yeah, I mean, we, we live surrounded by poisons. Most things are poisonous in, in one way or another. You know, salt is poison. Fizzy water is poison. You know, alcohol is poison. Uh, there's a lot of things that are poisonous. Um, and the only difference between something that's poisonous and healthy is the dose and the route of administration. Mm. You know, uh, water is relatively not poisonous, but if I pour a lot of it down your your windpipe, <laughs> you know, uh, the yeah. salt is fine. But if uh, if you sit down and eat five pounds of it, um, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. So so the dose makes the poison, all right. But also it means that actually, what sort of traces you're looking for mm. are difficult. Now, when somebody's been, you know, again, the most common poisons to this day still are things in food and drink. So I'm going to talk about that first of all, why that's difficult. Uh, because there, there's usually a delay between eating or drinking a poison and the effects. Very few of these things are extremely rapid act. So what that means is, you know, you, you, you eat, a, you eat, you eat a bad oyster at the bar mm. and the next morning you're really sick. All right. Now, if you were trying to investigate that forensically, that oyster shell has long been thrown in the bin. Yeah, yeah. The the mm -hmm. the 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 fork that you ate it with, the plate it was on, uh, the napkin you use, all that stuff, you'll never be able to figure it out because it's at a restaurant, a taxi ride away, you know, in another part of the city, and it was twelve hours ago. Quick sub question, sorry, very quick. Yeah. You know, if, um, yeah. you read about dictators who have like food tasters who are looking out for poisons. How on earth does that work? Huh. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, part of it, part of it, part of it is uh, part of it is more actually supply chain security. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, hiring people, yeah. hiring people that you trust. You know, uh, having your own kitchen uh, or you know, ordering it random off the menu as opposed to you know having a special menu selected beforehand or you know not you know yeah. I mean, I would I would advise if I was a Russian oligarch, I wouldn't make a reservation of my own name. Okay. I'd be John Smith, party at four, you know, turn up and, you know, there'd be three of us instead of four of us. And, you know, uh, you know, I would order, I, I, you know, you know, you know, I would order something off the menu, you know, not special. I take it that you worked in this field for the Secret Service. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like the Presidential Food Service officers just go to grocery stores around D.C. just in plain clothes for this reason. Well, yes, exactly. And I'm not going to comment on spe specific stuff on that, but you know, mm -hmm. uh, but if I was a detective uh, investigating a possible poisoning, the things that I might want to look for as physical evidence are going to be hard to find. Mm. Let me. All right. So if you're really sick and you throw up, where where's your where do you do it? You do it in the sink or the toilet, and you flush it all down afterwards. 
Now, the, the right. forensic thing to do is to, to you know, do it into a clean plastic save bag it. and save it, but nobody does that. So think about it. If somebody's been poisoned. Well, we want, the, we want the glass they drank out of. I want the plate they ate off of. I want the fork and the knife and the napkin. Well, guess what? The napkin's in the, uh, 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 the, napkin's in the trash. The fork and knife and the, the plate and the glass are all in the dishwasher. So the trail already goes colder. Okay. So you're left with, well, let's look at things like blood samples and, you know, urine samples and hair samples. And I'm saying sometimes you can tell stuff from that. Sometimes you can't. Uh, and it's not like there's a magic wand you wave saying, all right, tell me everything that's in the blood sample. It doesn't usually work that way. I mean, yeah, you need to, you need to kind of know what you're looking for. Well, that's a good point. I remember with the Litvinenko case, he, he went into hospital ill um, and they didn't know for sure if he actually had been poisoned. I think even the staff, because it was so such a crazy thought, didn't even think to actually properly check for a few days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's what actually makes something like the the uh, Navalny and Scripple things a little more obvious because the the exact mode of sickness is more clear cut. All right, and, and it's not mm. an unknown thing because of but there's a large body of knowledge on pesticide poisonings. Okay, which work exactly the same way. Yeah, so uh, you know that's that was a more obvious one. I mean, so you're sort of you, you get into you get into uh, odd situations. Now, some cases a little more, you know, clear cut. Somebody was jabbed with a needle. Okay, all right, okay. Then you have an idea. All right, this is this is probably some sort of poisoning. Okay, um, somebody has had something sprayed directly in their face. Okay, uh, a little more um, indirect, you know. Yet the the Navalny and Skripal things were contact poisons, all right, on a door handle and, and famously Navalny's underpants, you know. You know. Right. Um, and, and again, but that's a much slower and longer you know uptake of poison over a period of time. So, but sometimes the perpetrator may want that they, they want to be well gone and far away before it becomes an issue here's a question for you um so there have been theories i guess in the past that some of the instances of like the havana syndrome you know that have affected diplomats and intelligence officers around the world could be more psychosomatic than an actual like nefarious plot you know you're you're abroad you're um you're there's a degree of paranoia and stress involved and you assign otherwise kind of natural illnesses and stuff as being you know like someone did this to you these cases in prague and berlin with russian dissidents something that stands out to me is these poisonings, so-called poisonings, we don't we we don't know that that's what they were. They didn't cause any sort of lasting harm or physical injury. They just more just caused distress, discomfort for a while. Do you think it's possible that these instances are psychosomatic as well? Well, yeah, okay. I got in an awful lot of trouble with this, uh, you know, talking about tear gas in Iran. Uh, but I'm going to uh -huh. stick by my guns on this. Um, mass psychogenic illness is a thing. All right. Okay. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, uh, and just because an illness is psychogenic doesn't mean somebody is not sick. Okay. All right. People can get very gravely ill because of psychogenic factors. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. And and that doesn't mean that they're crazy people or that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. All right. Uh, this is a well-known phenomenon. But that's not to say that something is necessarily that. It just means we have to put that in the mix of things that we look at as you know possibilities 
But also, what do you start if you think you've been poisoned? Uh, what does that do to your anxiety levels? Right. Okay. What does anxiety do? No, anxiety is all in your head. But actually, one of the things I learned in my many, many years of research into nerve agents, all that the the demarcation point between what's in your head and what's in your body um, has got a hell of a lot of gray area overlap. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So being really anxious gives you real physical symptoms. Okay. Now, that's why I think a lot of things that you see, for example, these schoolgirls in Iran, uh, a, a, lot of the, lot, a lot of the situations where basically something caused them to have anxiety and the anxiety is causing the real problems. All right. And anxiety causes things like, guess what? You start to hyperventilate. All right. What happens when you hyperventilate? You get physically sick from a physical cause. Yeah, uh, because the amount of CO two dissolved in your blood goes down. You get things like, uh, you know, it 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 literally it literally changes the chemistry of your blood when you hyperventilate. All right, because you're getting too much oxygen and not enough carbon dioxide, and there's a there's a there's a, a the, the equilibrium changes. You get something called carbon dioxide tetany. You literally get muscle spasms and contractions and things like numbness. Okay. So mm-hmm. you see somebody, oh, my God, I can't move my arms and, you know, I'm paralyzed, you know. Um, and their blood chemistry seems all weird when somebody took a blood draw. Well, guess what? They've been spending an hour hyperventilating and weird shit like that happens. Weird shit is a technical term, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I mean, I'm not the greatest medic in the world. I, I did train as a, an emergency medical technician and I did do a fair, I went through the Secret Service Emergency Medicine Program. I have seen carbon dioxide tetany. And the first time you see it, it looks spooky as hell. And you think somebody's like really, really been, uh, really, in reality, they need to breathe into a paper bag for a few minutes. Okay. And it's like a miracle cure. All right. Uh, so I'm not saying that's happening in all these cases, but, you know, when I start seeing, you know, tingling and numbness. All right. And that was one of the things I saw in this uh, particular instance, you know, uh, that kind of gets me thinking, you know, all right. Uh, also, you know, you're, you're, you're right. When people start comparing notes with each other, you know, all three guys in the same office in Havana, well, you work in that office in Havana, you're, you're in a real pressure cooker environment. Oh Yeah. Okay. Everywhere you go, you're being surveilled. Okay. By, you know, by both good and and not so good surveillance, you know, from, because a lot of these surveillance is obvious, you know, I mean, it's a police state. Uh, so do you fixate on stuff? It doesn't, and it doesn't mean that there isn't something that's making them sick. Uh, I mean, is it something is, um, because there's this another thing called sick building syndrome. Okay. Yeah, which is a, a sick building syndrome is a, you know, it comes and goes, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a thing uh, where, where a lot of people in a particular building will come down ill with more or less the same mm. general illness, and nobody can figure out what the deal is. Uh, and if you Google it in the actual technical literature, go to Google Scholar and put in, you know, sick building syndrome, uh, there's a lot of cases where it's been worked out, a lot of cases where it hasn't. Uh, in my most recent book, not toxic, my more, the- my more theoretical textbook, which goes by the very thrilling name, CBRN and Hazmat Incidents at Major Public Events. <laughs> Sounds fun. Yeah, second edition. 
there was a convention. Uh, this is, you know, this is this is where this is where my career gets takes a funny turn. A uh, convention of furries. Okay. And yeah, yeah, the enthusiasts who like to dress in costume. Well, and that and a lot of people got sick and they thought they were poisoned, <laughs> and there was a smell of chlorine, and nobody could really figure it out or who did it. But there was a chlorine. Uh, uh, there was a there was a burst bag of a chlorine type you know, bleach powder in one of the stairwells. Okay, nobody can make the maths work out to to make that amount of material account for the number of symptoms or anything like that. Uh, it could, but it could sort of account for the smell. Uh, and so that was a classic case of sick building syndrome. All right. And I, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to tell somebody who felt sick, was sick, you know, that they weren't sick. I'm just saying that this stuff is far more complicated than anybody gives it credit for in the general public. Because people, people want a clear cut answer. Um, and poisonings in environmental health situations, there often isn't, hmm. particularly if there's multiple variables. Let me, let me give you an example. How about everybody in that office in Havana is on uh, a, a variety of anti-malarial drugs? And some of those are notorious, okay? Uh, there, there's been guys who came home from an overseas deployment on those malaria drugs and, and, and committed domestic violence or shot their television or drove their car into a wall, wow. okay? And is that a side uh, effect of this sort of cocktail? Yeah. Of, wow. Well, yeah. So, so some some categories of anti-malarial drugs, and guess what? If you're you're if you're in, you know, you know, Bujumbura or Kinshasa or someplace like that, you know, uh, you're on that stuff for for months at a time, and there will be some side effect. But also, th these are parts of the world where also you're using a lot more insecticides and pesticides. Uh, and maybe the stuff that you're using inside the embassy compound is, um, is, uh, is fine and the same sort of stuff you buy at home, but, uh, gee, what happens to the wind shifts and the building next door, you know, and they've just fumigated for mosquitoes. <laughs> okay. For example, uh, or Lord knows what happens in a lot of these places. So yeah. And you're running up against an environmental health background and it's not what you're used to. Okay, so there are things like there are there are endemic diseases that we don't normally have in in our part of the world. Uh, I, I should say the same thing happens in reverse. I mean, I volunteer with refugees and asylum seekers who you know, uh, and some of these guys and gals mostly I'm the, the, mostly I deal with guys. These guys come from hotter climates, hotter and hotter climates than here. Many of them are from drier climates. Uh, some of them are from much more humid climates, but you know. Uh, You'd be amazed how many you'd be amazed how many asylum seekers here in London suffer tremendously from chronic bronchitis and pneumonia and stuff like that just because they are not used to the climate. Right. Okay, so so this whole thing is basically it's an environmental health mystery, uh, and the thing is we can only sort of attach. Uh, names and measurements to some of the variables. Okay, uh, because you know it'd be really, really great to have a one-month sample of air. You know, yeah, you know, I, 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 I love, I love, for example, an uh, air sample from both the office and living quarters, and that, and the, and the embassy or intersection, whatever it's called in Havana. I'd love a whole year, in fact. That's yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to have an air sample from every, from every hour of every day in a year. 
so that's 3,650 air samples, one from my residence, one from the office. All right, so that's 7,000-something air samples. But that's a, that's, a, that's a sort of thing that a, a lab could do something really interesting with. But because we're all doing this retrospectively, we don't have that. Okay? All right. You know, it's sort of like asking, you know, at, it's sort of asking what did ancient Rome smell like? We don't know. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> we could guess. Probably not. Yeah, we could, we, 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 we could guess. We, we could guess what ancient Rome smelled like, but we don't know. We will never know. So we'll never know what was in the air in that office on the 3rd of March, you know, 1997. We won't know. Uh, and so that makes, you know, unlike other kinds of crimes, if you're saying who robbed the store over the road, and we we can look at every single frame of every single you know uh, you know video camera, you know, and the dashboard cameras, and you know we can we we can also we can even do more elegant things like you know, gee, what mobile phones were in the area? Let's find everybody who was walking in the area of the shop. We'll find somebody who saw something. It's fine, but. This, you're not going to get a, a, a you can you can you can crack that problem. You can't crack the problem. What was in the air on the third of March, nineteen ninety seven? All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, it's it's genuinely hard to do this. Um, and maybe maybe someday I'll write a detective novel on how to crack. Uh, uh, I'll write a procedural detective novel about a guy who cracks a mystery like this. Maybe that's what I'll do. You call him the air sampler. Oh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> like it. Like it. Oh, my goodness. Well, well um, Havana syndrome and psychosomatic syndromes aside, can you, uh, Dan, can you talk to us a little bit about the historical use of poisons by the Russian government to sort of silence critics and defectors? Well, as best we could tell, it goes back a long time. Uh, anecdotally, it goes back even before the communist era to the czarist era stuff that there the czarist secret police i think may have poisoned a few uh, dissidents you know the revolutionaries back in the day so there's uh the the earliest you know soviet era poisoning states in the 1920s uh where it where it really comes up interesting is it really picks up in the 1950s okay uh as luck would have it i was in an excellent uh you know presentation on this just two weeks ago in swansea uh, a conference I wasn't uninvited to, uh, I, but uh, you know, it depends on how you look at it. There's probably several dozen known poisonings. Uh, and where where you say whether where you draw the line, particularly in the Cold War, between sort of Soviet poisonings and ones done by their proxies in like uh, particularly Bulgaria. Uh, yeah, you kind of have you know there were several. There, Georgi Markov, for example, is the, uh, the famous. Poison umbrella. Yeah, the poison right? umbrella. Um, but I'm also going to say we get to the same issue of some people just died and we don't know why. Okay. Um, there's also, for example, the, uh, the, the, the there's also some gray area stuff. That, for example, there are people who were injected with sedatives, uh, for example, to help kidnap them. Uh that's a means to an end. That's not the end to itself. Even if one or two of them got overdosed accidentally, and may have died, because I think that may have happened at some point. Uh, you know, so a botched kidnapping isn't necessarily the same as a, a attempted assassination. Uh, but yeah, this is this is an old technique. 
part of part of the part of the thing is poisons. Poisons seem to occupy a niche in the Soviet stroke Russian, you know, arsenal, literally in the arsenal at points wherein other means aren't necessarily uh, the best. Okay, uh, the closer you are into Russia, in Russia itself, the Navalny thing's an outlier. In Russia, it's it's getting run over by a snowplow. It's literally getting shot. It's falling out a window. There's a lot of Instead of upgrading your windows, your windows upgrade you. Um, <laughs> uh, so the poisons, poisons come up in places like you know the UK, where it's easier to smuggle a poison than it is a gun. Yeah, I, like the the Novichok uh, that was smuggled in a fake perfume bottle, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah, well, well, certainly there was a fake perfume bottle that was discovered. Uh, I'm of the opinion that that was not the actual stuff that was used. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it was well. Do you think it was like a backup or something? Yeah, it was probably a backup. Yeah. Uh, it was probably a backup stash, got you. Uh, yeah. and then got somebody. Some somebody got told to go, you know, find it from its dead drop and throw it in the bin. That's my theory, and it ended up in the bin. That's why it ended up in months after the actual event, you know. Uh, but you know, the am- amount of material we're talking about is, you know, you know, an eye drop. You know, there's a it would be a slightly gel-like solution. So I mean, you put it in a toothpaste mm. tube. It's not, you know, this stuff doesn't have magic properties. Mm. It's it's you know, it's it's a thick liquid, and as long as you keep the cap on the on the bottle, it's mm. safe. Do you do you think those sort of things get smuggled via diplomatic pouches and things? Oh yeah, quite easily. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I mean, my working hypothesis, it, and it's only a hypothesis. Uh, hypothesis is that these two guys who did the deed, the two. Nutritional salesman, <laughs> nutritional supplement salesman, wanting to go see the cathedral spire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they traveled completely clean. Yeah. All right. Uh, we now, thanks to the magic of Bellingcat, we know that they rendezvoused with a third person in London, uh, also with the GRU. And wasn't he a doctor in the GRU? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they rendezvoused with somebody else. I, I think that I think that the goods probably got sent in by diplomatic pouch. Uh, maybe some of it was given to them, or maybe it, it could even have been put, uh, you know, secreted into a dead drop out in uh, Salisbury, or possibly both. You know, you know, in case you guys lose it, don't worry. We'll, you know, call us. We'll tell you where the other one's hidden. In the cathedral, in the steeple. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, exactly. You know, uh, I mean, it's you know. That's that's how it, that's how it could easily work. I'm not saying we'll ever necessarily get to the bottom of it. You know, I mean, we could get lucky, get to the bottom of it, or we'll never know. Dan, how much risk do you think there is to the officers that handle this stuff? With a modicum of training, not very much. Okay, Novichok is not volatile. By volatile, volatility means the propensity of it to go from a liquid state to a a gaseous state. The stuff has got less volatility than Vaseline. Okay. Uh, it just sits where it is. It doesn't evaporate very much at all. Uh, it's less, you know, for, for example, you could literally stand in a puddle of stuff and take deep breaths, and you're not going to absorb any of it into your lungs. Okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, it's designed as an environmental contaminant. All right. It's designed to contaminate terrain and equipment for a long time. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike Saren, Saren, I wouldn't stand in a puddle of Saren and take a deep breath. I wouldn't. I wouldn't advise that. We definitely don't advise that in this no, show. No, Saren <laughs> is on the Saren is on the other end of the volatility and yeah. nerve agents. It's designed to cause immediate casualties. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, you know, this stuff that they use called A234, you know, is designed to be very persistent in the environment. And so as long as you don't, and not only that, it absorbs rather slowly through the skin. These things, these things aren't instantaneous. They take hours to work. Uh, and we know this because Porton Down spent an awful lot of time back in the height of the Cold War with nerve agents and a bunch of shaved goats and shaved rabbits and shaved guinea pigs. Mm -hmm. All right. And so basically taking droplets of these various things and, you know, not this A234, but substances quite similar like BX and Somat and Sarin and all these other stuff and seeing how long it takes to go through skin. Uh, the answer is twofold. First of all, it depends which part of the body it's on. And second, you know, how much is there. But, you know, it takes a while, uh, you know, hours uh, faster in the groin area, oddly. Hence the underwear. Yeah, I always yeah. wondered if that was just a mm. statement. Uh, but, no, no, uh, no. There's scientific evidence on this, um, and we know it because back in the dirty war that was going on in Rhodesia. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, the Rhodesian security services were using parathion pesticide, a very nasty pesticide. It's the it's a nerve agent. Parathion is a nerve agent. That's why it's prohibited now. Uh, when it parathion in its pure form is as dangerous as sarin basically all right it's meant to be used in sort of one in a thousand dilution that sort of thing uh they were contaminating secondhand clothing with it and leaving it around where where the uh, various zimbabwean rebel groups would find it and put it on so they're literally contaminating pants and shirts and trousers and all that and they did a fair amount of study on which parts of the body you know absorb the stuff faster and you know the crotch is right up there um, the palm of your hand is not very, it takes longer because you've got subcutaneous fat. Yeah. Anywhere you've got fat works as a layer. So, so I'm saying if you've got some of this stuff on your hands and you wash your hands immediately, you're probably fine. Mm. Wow. wow. Yeah. Talk about uh, layers of fat. Um, there was yeah. a guy who got shot by an assassin not far from where I used to live. And mm -hmm. um, he only the reason he survived is because he, the bullets were subsonic and he had a lot of fat on his belly where he got shot. And somehow the combination of those two things saved his life. Well, well <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. Uh, I'm less of an expert on, uh, on, on ballistics, but I don't know nothing on it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, at some point, body fat is body armor, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I, one, of the, one of the things I would also say when we talk about these political poisonings, um, nobody ever actually knows how effective a poison is because no, for, no form of, no form of uh, assassination is completely effective. Uh, it's always a gamble with poisoning. Okay. I mean, shooting a guy in the head at close range with a rifle is fairly effective. All right. You know, crushing a guy flat with a car, yeah. All right, people have survived that, okay? Uh, throwing a guy out of an airplane at 35,000 feet, nobody survives that, you know. You know, dropping a guy into the depths of the sea, you know. I mean, but, you know, poisoning is pretty, when you look at all the ways you can kill somebody, you know, poisoning's pretty, yeah, yeah, yeah you've got to make a lot of guesses. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot that goes wrong. Well, the Scripple case is a perfect example because the thankfully the pair of them didn't die. Yeah, um, well, so, uh, the yeah. thing is, the thing is with nerve agents, there's an actual clear-cut medicine that helps. There actually is with cyanides, too. The thing with cyanides is you need that medicine very quickly. You need that medicine uh, probably quicker than most people poisoned with cyanide can get the medicine. But, you know, there, there, there are... There are uh, 
there are there are medicines that will uh, save somebody from cyanide you know and there are medicines that will save somebody from nerve agents because nerve agents work slower than cyanide you have a window of opportunity to get those medicines to people and that's yeah. what happened with everybody except uh, Dawn Sturgis i mean she had such a large dose of this stuff we're not talking about a tiny little droplet you know on her hand she sprayed it on both her wrists and rubbed it in and rubbed it on her yeah, neck she was thinking it was perfume mm. wasn't she so she yeah, yeah and yeah. took a big deep sniff of it to Poor see what lady. it smelled like yeah yeah, yeah. so you know, yeah, she, she had an overwhelming, uh, 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 she had an overwhelming exposure. And so the, the, med the medicine couldn't save her. I, just quick thing. If she sniffed it, uh, I'm assuming she would have sniffed it before putting it on herself. Yeah. It must have yeah. smelled quite good. Don't know. We don't, we don't know if something was added to it to make it smell good. Mm. I don't know that fact. Yeah. Does it usually have a smell? Uh, nobody really knows. <laughs> I suppose the problem is how to test that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do you uh, ask someone afterwards? The, the, um, the first nerve agent, Taboon, has got a kind of fruity smell. We know that from Halabja in, in uh, Kurdistan. Right. Yeah. Uh, we know, you know, we know that from people who are accidentally exposed to it and uh, uh, to sublethal quantities. Because Tabun, the first nerve agent, is actually—I mean, it's a nerve agent, but it's 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 the least dangerous of the military ones. Yeah. Uh, and so you get more scenarios wherein somebody will get a, a a dangerous but not necessarily lethal dose. So you know, people could figure out what it smelled like. I'm not sure anybody really knows what sarin smells like. Um, it's very hard to make pure sarin anyway. Uh, if you're smelling something from sarin, you're almost certainly smelling the nasty, you know, uh, nasty byproducts. What's the one that's supposed to smell like almonds? Oh, there's hydrogen cyanide. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Definitely yeah, yeah. smelling that. <laughs> yeah. Well, hydrogen cyanide also has, uh, it's, it's what you call a warning property. All mm. right. It's got a good warning property in that there is a big difference between the level at which you can smell it and the point at which... It's going to kill you. And cyanides are funny in that there's no there's no middle ground. It's not like cyanide is going to make you a little bit sick. You, mm. you either you're, you're either fine or you're going to die. Okay, <laughs> all right. Because believe it or not, your body has a small but limited ability and limited ability to detoxify cyanides. Okay, uh, and there's not a oh, I got really sick off it and got better unless you got unless it was literally you got a toxic dose. And you got the medicines, okay? Because there are medicines that are direct antagonists to cyanides. Uh, also, not everybody, not everybody has the sensitivity in their nose to hydrogen cyanide. Uh, but because hydrogen cyanide has some industrial uses, uh, in the past it had a lot more industrial uses than it does now because it is dangerous stuff to work with. Yeah, you know, there is there's a lot of knowledge of what it smells like. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, Dan, is is there anything else you want to add before we sort of wrap up on on this topic at all? Well, I want to give a plug for something completely different, if that's all right. I've yeah. got a new book. I've got a new. I've got sure. a new book coming out in August. Oh, brilliant! Called the Forest Brotherhood. This is out of my chemicals and biological stuff into my Lithuanian half of my family tree. Uh, I'm writing. I've written this book about partisan resistance against Nazis and Soviets in in the three Baltic countries: Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And the book is called The Forest Brotherhood. Uh, Watch this space uh, because there's interesting stuff there, and there's lots of secrets and spies and stuff in there. So I think it's a good angle for me to come back on your show oh, to talk about that. Definitely. I 
think we would love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah definitely. For sure. It'd be good to have you on. And is there a Toxic Volume 2 coming out or something? I was no, 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 no. Um, <laughs> or is that just somebody saying that on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the, the next book project that is in the works now is I'm actually doing a deep dive into uh, tear gas, pepper spray, riot control agents. Because it's an mm. area where there's controversy, there's... There's myth and legend and urban legend and nonsense, and but also a lot of interesting history, too. That became a big issue over here in recent years. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Just exactly yeah. how safe is tear gas? Mm. And the answer is, you're not going to like the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Um, Dan, before you go, uh, maybe this is related to toxic substances, I don't know, but um, I've noticed on Twitter that you're a bit of a cheese connoisseur. And I was wondering uh, if you have any recommendations for us. I'm a bit of a fan of blue cheese myself. Oh, uh, <laughs> you're you're putting my you're putting me on here for a cheese of the day. Uh, yeah, yeah, with the Cars Water uh, Biscuit, I think. <laughs> I'm sadly not related to the Cars Water Biscuit uh, family, but try ah, uh, if you've not tried it, try Shropshire Blue. Okay. Unlike your normal blue cheese, yeah. which is sort of a white cheese with blue flecks, it's yeah. a yellow cheese with blue flecks in it. Ah. Uh. Yeah, Shropshire Blue. It's one of my favorite blue cheeses. What's a good one for putting on pizza? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, is this the secret spies and Philistines? Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, if, you put, if you put blue cheese on pizza, I'm <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah, I'm not, a I'm not a big fan of that. Although I have to say blue cheese on a burger isn't Oh, bad. yeah. That's good. Yeah. 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 Stil Stilton on a burger, mm. actually. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> if you, good. Chris, if you put blue cheese on pizza, it's going to be 1776 all over. Again, <laughs> all right? With We're anchovies. With anchovies as that. well. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a relative purist on the pizza. It should be mozzarella, maybe a little bit of Parmesan or Grana Padano. Yeah. You know. You know uh, although I have, to, I, have to, I, have to, I have to say, yeah. there, there is this place in Croatia, Zagreb, that does um, a very good pizzas with Gouda on Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. That sounds good. That sounds yeah. Good. Yeah. It's actually, yeah, I'd, I'd say don't dismiss that out of hand. No. No. And uh, Matt, did you have any uh, cheese related uh, preferences or questions? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I was, I was going to make the point that I know all cheese is basically mold, but for me, I can't get past the little blue bits <laughs> in blue cheese. It's like moldy bread, and I just, I, I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's some oh, moles apparently they're good for you, but anyway. oh, yeah. Dan, thank you for joining us on Extra Shot and on Espresso Martini. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Cool. Right, our final story. Um so uh we're gonna finish up now with um a story about Putin's past in Germany and this an article in De Spiegel um called Putin the Pen Pusher. Russian president's years in Germany seem less exciting than the stories. So I'll just kind of summarize what they what they uh, found there. So reports in De Spiegel have revealed that the wild stories circulating about Vladimir Putin's alleged involvement in the Red Army faction and other German terrorist groups during this time of the KGB in Dresden are likely unfounded. The main source of these claims identified as Dietmar C, because I think um, in Germany they have a law about identifying people fully, but if you Google, you can find his full identity. Um, 
So Dietmar C is considered a notorious fabricator and has no credible connection to the RAF or the Red Army faction, otherwise known as the Bader-Meinhof group. Um, and the reporting highlights the problems of blurring fact and fiction when examining Putin's past as a KGB officer. While some speculate about his involvement in special missions and covert operations, there is limited evidence to support these claims. The lack of information in the Stasi files raised questions about the nature of Putin's assignments and whether they were intentionally erased or just simply routine tasks. Putin's work in Dresden has been portrayed as more mundane than glamorous, with accounts describing him as an errand boy and a complete conformist. He was primarily involved in administrative tasks such as processing travel applications and searching for potential informants. The stories of Putin's alleged meetings with the RAF or Red Army Faction in Dresden um, where he would have provided instructions and suggestions for terrorist attacks, have all been traced back to Dietmeyer C. However, C's credibility is highly questionable, given his criminal record and history of embellishing his own biography. German security authorities have no information connecting him to the Red Army faction, the KGB or the Stasi. The allegations against Putin regarding his involvement in the RF terrorism seem to illustrate the blurred line between fact and speculation in narratives surrounding his KGB past. Some authors like Marsha Gessen and Catherine Belson have included accounts from alleged RAF members implicating Putin, but there is limited corroborating evidence to support those claims. The stories of Putin's supposed role in orchestrating terrorist attack and destabilizing Western Germany remain largely unsubstantiated, and the credibility of Dittmeyer C as a source is also highly questionable. So Matt, I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of, any of that at all. Um. It's an interesting story. Mm. I think, you know, Vladimir Putin is now kind of like the world's supervillain mm. at the moment. Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> um, and I guess coming with that territory is a is a want to kind of mythologize him and mm. and make mm. him up to be kind of a bigger deal than he actually was. I mean, his his career with the KGB in in Germany, kind of being on the front lines of the fall of of communism, the reunification, um, was definitely a really traumatic experience for him and you think that much is known like he called you know uh the collapse of the soviet union you know one of the greatest catastrophes of like the 20th century or something yeah. he said um so yeah so i guess with that uh want to uh mythologize him you know um it is a bit you know sexier to say like oh he was you know the puppet master behind all these kind of uh terrorist groups that were mm, running mm. rampant through Germany in the, you know, 70s and 80s, like Bader Meinhof is, you know, one of those for sure. But I think it also rings more true to reality that, you know, this guy who is, you know, the world supervillain right now was kind of just like a glorified secretary yeah. during his intelligence career. Yeah. 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 Yeah, indeed. Well, I think the many things I've read about Putin over the years, I think, yeah, he had an unremarkable career as a KGB officer. And if anything, it feels like the KGB had more influence on him than he had on it. Oh, at for least, sure. At least until he became, obviously, the head of the FSB and then the president yeah. of Russia. Um, 
you know, I think Putin really bought into the mythology, the KGB, the stories of um, he, he as a child really loved a particular show about uh, KGB intelligence. It was like the equivalent of the man from Uncle or James Bond. And he even mm. wrote, famously wrote to the KGB when he was a teenager asking what he needed to do to get a job. And they supposedly said to him to get, I think, a law degree or something and, and so on. Um, so, yeah. And I think, you know, with this particular story, it does highlight the difficulty in intelligence history especially when spies and terrorists collaborate. How does one cooperate an eyewitness account of covert activity? Very yeah. difficult. Um, it kind of reminded me of, because uh, I was thinking about Walter Mitty's. There's a lot of Walter Mitty's out there, and it sounds like Deep Myer C might be one. And it was a famous book in the early 2000s in the early days of the war on terror called jihad the secret war in afghanistan and it was written by this man called tom carew and he claimed to be linked to the british sas and mi6 and he allegedly was part of training afghan insurgents during the 1980s and in the book anyway this book uh, did the rounds um and it was quoted as fact for a good few weeks and then newsnight uh, dug into his history and uncovered that carew was in the army, but in a very limited support role. I think he was actually a mechanic or something, and that this book was not based on any fact whatsoever. And then Carew sort of dis uh, in disgrace disappeared from the public eye, and then later in 2009 he was found dead in a garage, and his death led to then speculation as to whether he was murdered or somehow faked his death, which seems like the perfect mm. end for for a, a major fabricist. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, it's it's just there's a lot of these sort of people out there. I mean, I, I've certainly. There are a few I have my suspicions about Twitter from time to time. Um, oh, it's yeah. difficult. It's very hard sometimes to determine who who is uh, genuine and who isn't. And certainly some editorial standards have dropped over the years. And that book, Jihad, is still available on Amazon. And there's still quite a few positive reviews for it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's unbelievable, really. Um what else? Uh, now, one thing I will say, actually, so these claims against Putin's connection to supporting the Red Army faction aside, um, it is an established fact that the Soviet Union did support terrorist groups in the uh, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the KGB yeah. worked with the Stasi, and they did provide funds and equipment and training for left-wing terrorist groups, and even, apparently, Palestinian terrorist groups as well. And mm -hmm. the Soviets wanted to use these left-wing terror groups, such as the Bader-Meinhof group, to destabilise um, Germany and to break up NATO. And there's a really good Atlantic article which we'll link to titled How the Soviet Union Transformed Terrorism by Nick Lockwood. And it was from 2011. Um, and one observation Lockwood made was that when the Soviet Union ended, so did much of the secular left-wing terrorism that it had sponsored in the decades before. Logistical yeah, support, true. funding and advice all just stopped. Um, even, you know, even look at the... Um, uh, Palestinian ter uh, terrorist groups and stuff, they ended up having to go to the White House and try a peace deal, didn't they? Yeah. Um, and it does make you wonder if it's because of the fall of the USSR. Maybe they were getting a lot more funding. Um, who knows? Um, and so, yeah, so it's very interesting, all that. Um, and he also added that, uh, just as importantly, the intellectual, spiritual, and philosophical engine of left leftist terror had become broken and powerless. Communism did not work. Liberal democracy and capitalism had won. Marxism had lost its inspirational impact without a superpower cheerleader and benefactor. The potential terrorists were no longer motivated by Marxism, and crucially, neither were their supporters. 
you know, and you look at um, when the USSR collapsed, you also had then um, North Korea and Cuba fell into terrible financial problems. Yep. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to say there about all that. Um, yeah. Well, now they've uh, now the Russians have shifted gears and they're supporting right wing terrorism and look at yeah. the proliferation of that in recent years. Oh, yeah. 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 Because we, we said many a time before, so get your drinks out. You know, uh, Putin and Russia present themselves as the saviors of the white Christian world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they particularly don't like anything woke. Um, so <laughs> there's a lot of uh, anti woke hysteria on the Internet over the years that I think is definitely being exaggerated by uh, Russian bots online and then kind of Kremlin, the usual suspects of kremlin supporters etc um with the german uh russian terrorist connection there's quite a good film called the legends of rita from back in the early 90s that looks at the sorry early 2000 that looks at the stasi connection to the red army faction um and another funny point as well the red army faction's logo has a red star with an h and k mp5 submachine gun and these submachine guns apparently the uh, red army faction stole from the german army and this gun was sort of quite famous um, for both uh, terrorists and, and counter-terrorist use. So uh, the gun was oh, made yeah. famous by the SAS during the Iranian embassy siege, and then you have Bruce Willis using it in the film Die Hard, and yeah. obviously the Bader-Meinhof group were using it before those two episodes. So so yeah. uh, kind of an interesting choice of gun for your logo. Yeah, there. the MP5 is like the gun of the mm. 80s and 90s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a cool-looking yeah. gun. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. but it, it, it is, I think now the... <laughs> read somewhere that um submachine guns are a bit out of um they're a bit passe now because you can get compact assault rifles that have a more powerful bullet so yeah carbines yeah. well the mp5 was a we're getting off track but the mp5 is a nine millimeter which mm. you gotta if if someone is is coming at you and wants mm. to you know do mm. you harm mm. uh they can they can take quite a few nine millimeter rounds before they go down but if they get hit with you know like a Mm. a nato round or a standard Mm. ak round Mm. i mean they're they're going down yeah yeah unless you're bruce willis then it's unless you're bruce willis and you go plot armor (laughs) oh man so um yeah so that's all the key sort of stories today um i just wanted to quickly note there are two new spy shows coming out one called ghosts of Beirut um, and then there's another one called Spymaster and Ghost of Beirut um, is going to be on uh, Showtime and Paramount Plus and Spymaster is going to be on HBO Max and they're coming out in the next few weeks and they're both based on sort of real life stories and look like my kind of spy show so we'll see how that goes but yeah. I am uh, very interested in these shows. Mm. The Ghost of Beirut, uh, yeah Ghost of Beirut in particular um one of the main antagonists of the Active Measure series, uh, Ibrahim al-Din, mm. um, is uh, largely based on Imad uh, Magnia. And, you know, Ghost of Beirut is kind of the story of his uh, rise and fall. I mean, through the 80s and 90s, um, he was kind of like the main master terrorist. Mm. Uh, mm. Before 9-11, um, so Iman Iman uh, Magnia uh, ran the Islamic Jihad organization, which is um, within Hezbollah. Um, Islamic Jihad is kind of their 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 armed wing, and uh, Magnia was responsible for kind of you know foreign operations, terrorism, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, intelligence as well. Um, he had killed uh, the most Americans of 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 a terrorist he had killed mm. the most americans of mm. of anyone until bin laden yeah. and 911 um i mean his he kind of like 
invented the car bombing, you know, like the mm. big, uh, big dramatic, you know, huge explosion uh, that just wipes out, you know, like a city block from one, you know, car or, 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 or truck. Uh, that was kind of his, uh, yeah, he, he, he pioneered that. I yeah. mean, like the, um, the bombings of the uh, American embassy in Beirut in '83, mm. mm. bombings of the um, the Marine barracks. U.S. and French Marine barracks. Yeah. He did that. Yeah. Uh, the Kobar Towers bombing mm. in Saudi Arabia. Um, the a Jewish cultural center in mm. in South America in the mm. '90s. He did that. Mm. Um, a lot of kidnappings of you know like Bill yeah. Buckley, the yeah. CIA station chief in Beirut. He did that too. Um, really really kind of a, a famous career mm. um early on in those days of like international uh islamist terrorism mm. um mm. and i guess the show uh brings it up to when he was um killed in a car bombing uh ironically enough uh, by the cia and Mossad in damascus i believe it was in 2008 yeah yeah so kind of ironic ending for him there <laughs> yep yeah, so I'm yeah. sure the the ghost of Beirut will kind of go into all that, and it'll probably be the ending of the show. So a bit of a spoiler there, but uh, yeah, but it is in a lot of books. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Well, look, Matt, thank you for joining me today. Are you up to anything interesting over the next sort of few days or the weekend? Ahead? Uh, I am um, trying to uh, uh, not succumb to the uh, smoke that we're oh, having yeah. here. Oh yeah, how, how is Northeast. that going? How is that going? Um, it's pretty horrific. It's it's good. Yesterday, it's a bit. I haven't been outside much yet this morning, but it, it's a bit better here today. Yeah. So I mean, there's these wildfires in in Canada. If listeners don't uh, aren't really you know caught up on that, there's these wildfires in, in Canada that have in the last couple of days been blowing the smoke into like the northeast. Um, it's been pretty bad. I mean, New York had, had it kind of the worst yesterday and I'm about an hour and a half south of New York city. And I think the air quality here yesterday was like the worst on earth, oh, like God. worse than like Delhi or the big like Indian cities. Um, it, it was pretty bad. Like you could smell the smoke. Um, it, it's a bit better today. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's looking like Blade time. Runner 2047, is it, or 49? I can't remember. Is it 2047 or 49? Something like that. But yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it looked like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember many years ago, I think it was 2018, London, um, uh, a whole load of, I think it was Sahara dust flew over London and we had similar kind of orange skies. It was nowhere near as dense or as bad as what you're experiencing, but uh, it was pretty eerie for a couple of hours. But um, yeah, I mean, what is it? Is it because we heard reports of was it Jodie Comer was choking on stage yesterday and uh, couldn't perform in a play and other things? How you know, a is lot it of Broadway shows canceled yesterday. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it's I wasn't out that no. much yesterday no. i was driving around quite a bit but i mean when i was out like my eyes burned a little Ooh, bit which yeah, is yeah um yeah to think yeah. like it's coming from from canada is is yeah. crazy god like, damn it canada yeah what are they doing burning their bacon <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how's your chain smoking neighbor <laughs> <laughs> You know, funnily enough, I got home yesterday yeah. and, uh, and you know, like you can smell the smoke. The air is yeah. full of smoke. Like my, your, my eyes mm. are burning walking around and I, I get back home and my neighbor is sitting on her stoop, like smoking a cigarette. And you think like, like, <laughs> okay, sure. Breathe in deep. 
<laughs> oh brilliant brilliant well cool well thank you again matt and um Thanks, yeah i think my plans the weekend i think at the moment i'm potentially going to be doing um i plan to slow cook some beef to make a kind of chicago style sandwich i saw it uh mm-hmm. online the other week and i thought oh i could do that so uh, i'm going to attempt mm-hmm. it see how it goes that sounds good yeah yeah it did look quite nice my wife's quite excited by this so uh, the only the only difficulty over here is finding the correct role for it because we don't quite have the same type of bread as you do in the state so oh, um yeah. so i'm caught between should it be a french bread or a hot dog roll because i kind of need something as a bit of both but we don't have i that. would my my advice to you mm. if you're looking for that kind of a roll hot dog hot dog buns are like very kind of soft and squishy i would go with like a like a baguette yeah um, that's what i was that, thinking and that's probably pretty mm. pretty mm. close to the real deal that's what I was thinking. I will ignore my wife's requests because she wanted yeah. a hot dog roll. I was like thinking, nah, baguette, baguette. But we'll see. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll get a hot dog roll for her and I'll have a baguette and then we can compare. <laughs> <laughs> that's democracy for you. <laughs> or is that just marriage? I don't know. But <laughs> yeah. Well, marriage is, is, is democracy, I guess. Yes, to, yes. To yeah, well, hopefully healthy marriages, yes. Yeah. <laughs> on that note thank you very much for listening everybody and we will catch you on the next one thank you matt thank you thanks chris